Welcome to episode 83 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. In this episode, we're going to do some deep sky observing in Orion, Taurus, and Perseus. I'm Chris, and joining me as always is Shane. We are amateur astronomers, and that means we love looking up at the nighttime sky, and this podcast is for anyone else who enjoys going out under the stars. So Shane, you set up some parameters for us this week to do a few constellations. And uh, you want to look, uh, you want to take, take a look at these during the, the new moon period for January. Of course, these are really going to be nice and high for the next uh, few months. Uh, but we thought we'd get this out now. So, uh, so you know, they're going to be well placed in the evening sky between 7 and 10 p.m. Uh, and of course, as, as the season progresses, um, you know, Taurus and Perseus will come down a little bit lower and and Orion will will transit the meridian and, and get into the uh, into the western sky. But we'll talk about uh, these three: Orion the Hunter, constellation Orion the Hunter, constellation of Taurus the Bull, and the constellation of Perseus the Hero. And what do you think? We'll start with Orion because it is the most dominant winter constellation. Yeah, yeah, I think that sounds good. And All right. and um, you know, one of our most popular episodes every month is the. Uh, objects to observe for the month of January, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and and um, that episode focuses a lot on the solar system stuff. And you and I have had, you know, a number of conversations about trying to get into some more deep sky stuff. And yes. uh, this is our first, I think, real kick at it. And, um, you know, this is something that we'll hopefully repeat on a monthly basis as well. So we'll have the solar system stuff, and then we'll get into some prominently placed deep sky observing stuff, if that's uh, what people are into. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a funny, we've kind of done it a bit uh, bass backwards because we were, uh, you know, I, I kind of think of us, or, or at least me anyway, is a little bit more of a, of a deep sky, uh, dark sky observer. And in a way, this, this kind of reflects uh, perhaps a little bit more to my true nature uh, as, as an observer. Um, and perhaps uh, one of the reasons why we haven't uh, you know, jumped into this uh, material so far is because uh, sometimes I wonder if my own interests will be of any interest to anybody else. <laughs> yeah, you you are a strange person, so it's uh, that's a fair fair question. <laughs> I was uh, well, thanks, uh, but I, I was thinking about like my purchases the other day, and like it seems like, and I was thinking about this since I was a small uh, child, and this was, you know, they were, they were talking about skateboarding on the uh, Stuff You Should Know podcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts uh, that I listen to, and uh, and I was thinking, yeah, when I was a kid, I was really into this too, and I would. I would drag my folks off to like these obscure places, like these obscure skateboard stores. They'd be, you know, um, you know, a, a rental apartment unit in like an old building somewhere that was kind of a bit dilapidated. You'd go in and they'd have all this really cool uh, skateboard stuff. And, you know, I used to be into music, but sort of independent music. And so you'd always be trying to find these like weird record stores in these strange uh, towns and cities, uh, you know, as, as I was traveling around as, as a small person and, you know, just, just stuff like that. Right. But, you know, going to the mall was always like, there's nothing there for me. <laughs> not much there at the mall for me. ever. So. Anyway, I, I, I think I do have uh, some sort of offbeat uh, interests. Uh, that is for sure. So, and, and astronomy seems actually like, in many ways, perhaps astronomy and music are, are my two most mainstream offbeat 
uh, interests. But today we're going to talk about Orion. Um, so Shane, tell me about like, what was your first recollection of uh, maybe seeing Orion as a constellation? Like when, when did you first discover Orion for yourself? Oh, gee, you know, that, that constellation and the Big Dipper is what stands out for me, um, you know, as my earliest memories of constellations. Um, living in the Northern Hemisphere at 50 degrees, uh, the Big Dipper is always in the sky. It's very recognizable. Um, but the Orion Nebula was always, you know, the, the sign that winter is here or that winter is coming, you know, depending on when, when, when I would see it. But um, it's just so large and it's so easy to spot because of the three stars of the belt. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think that this is one of the most recognizable constellations in the sky. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's uh, I, I don't have an age, but I just I remember knowing Orion and the Big Dipper. And those were the only two I knew <laughs> you know, at an early age. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of kind of like you, I knew a handful of the constellations, but I think like when it came to Orion, I kind of, it was one of those things. And I, and I noticed this as well, when I take people out um, to actually sort of really try to do astronomy for the first time, um, regardless of, of their age, they might say, well, I think that's Orion. Like, and they, it's sort of something they've, they've assumed they were correct about, but they weren't like a hundred percent sure because they didn't have anybody sort of to independently verify that that's, that's what the uh, constellation was. Um, so I remember um, I'd actually received, I always say sort of my, my real foray into um, amateur astronomer, uh, amateur astronomy really jumping in and taking it pretty seriously was the result of the most disappointing Christmas present I ever received. Um, and that was, <laughs> I, I was, so I, I'd been doing, um, I'd always been interested. And as I got into um, my first year university and, and then um, I went and did archeology span in, in England for, for a summer semester, um, I became really fascinated with astronomy um, and was really looking to get going. And uh, my partner at the time, she purchased me um, a, uh, a, a the Backyard Astronomer's Guide by Terence Dickinson and Alan Dyer and a pair of, of probably about the most reasonably expensive, uh, reasonably priced uh, binoculars um, that you could get that you could use with glasses and as a glasses where this, this was important for me. So uh, I was just so disappointed that I opened the book and here I am I'm thinking, you know, the other box is just the keys to the telescope, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> and here, here it was uh, a pair of binoculars. And uh, so I was just like, Oh gee, like, and I was, you know, I'm, I don't have much of a poker face maybe. And I could tell she, she knew I was disappointed. Uh, but, um, I went out with, uh, with a buddy of mine who was, uh, who was a physics major. He had actually done like the astronomy labs at the end. So he really knew hundred percent, which was Orion. And, uh, and I said, like, apparently with these binoculars, we should be able to see the Orion nebula. And he was like, well, I don't know about that, but you know, we can find her. So we had like a star chart that, uh, I don't know if it was in the, in that, uh, in that book or another book, or we got a uh, we probably went and bought an astronomy magazine at, at the store and we're like, all right, like, let's go. And I remember the moon was up um, and, uh, and we kind of went out with them and we found it like almost right away. Like it just couldn't have been more instant gratification, like which it almost never is with astronomy. Right. So, mm -hmm. so I got the binoculars. 
uh, like on Christmas day or the day after or something like that, whenever we cut together. And then I called my friend and it was clear the next day and we went out and within like, I want to say within three or four minutes, we, we both had had a view of the Orion Nebula. And so that really got me hooked because, you know, here it is. Could this be any easier? Right. You know? yeah, so yeah. I yeah, think it's an, it's an incredible object. Um, yeah. The first time I saw it was with an eight inch uh, Dobsonian in my backyard in, in the city here. Um, and I was just blown away by how bright it was, how big it was. And just like, I, I, I looked at it the entire night actually for a couple of hours and um, you, you know, just the swirls and some of the textures in there were, mm -hmm. were incredible. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful object. Yeah, so maybe we should talk very quickly about what the Orion Nebula is. So the Orion Nebula, and then we'll talk about how to find it here in a second. But the Orion yeah. Nebula is a, it's a star-forming region, and it's right below the belt of Orion. And the belt of Orion is actually one of the easiest things in the nighttime sky to find. Now, you might be able to find like the whole constellation of Orion, but really, um, these three belt stars, there's nothing, um, there's no set of three stars that are as bright as those three stars that are as close together that look kind of like a belt. Um, mm -hmm. and then this thing is basically just, uh, a binocular field or two, um, uh, below them. So how do we find Orion, Shane? What's the best way to find it, uh, in, in the evening sky these nights? Well, what I like to do, so you find the belt of Orion, there's the three stars, the star that is on the left-hand side, um, you just go basically down from there. And you'll see another, like with your naked eye, you should see some fainter stars um, below that. Um, like you said, a couple binocular fields below. Mm -hmm. um, but that little set of what, you know, kind of looks like stars to your eye is the Orion Nebula. And it's very, like, again, you see a naked eye uh, within uh, even urban centers, like within our city, I can see mm -hmm. it. And uh, if you point any kind of optics at that nebula, it really shows itself. Yeah, even even from a city, uh, you should be able to see some some of the nebula. All but all but the largest uh, cities, like I think, uh, you know, uh, maybe maybe the six or eight largest cities in Canada, you'd you'd have some trouble seeing it. But like when I lived in Halifax, which is a moderately sized city, uh, I could see it. Our city is a little bit smaller, but I have like tons of lights around me. It's uh, really badly light polluted. I I can still see it quite uh, quite easily. So yeah, so I always like to think of Orion as kind of like. Uh, throwing one leg up over the horizon at this time of year and he kind of mm -hmm. like hefts himself uh, into view. I don't know if that's something that I've thought up or something I read somewhere else or what, but um, he kind of rises on, on this angle uh, just as it's getting dark on these, on these uh, sort of, you know, early winter nights, I guess we're still early winter getting into midwinter. Uh, and then as we get, uh, as we get further along in the winter, he'll be towards the, the middle of the sky uh, or just above due South into the meridian area. Um, so what else is there to see in Orion? You know, one of the things that everybody was looking at this time last year was really big in the news was Betelgeuse. Do you remember what was going on with that last year? Well, yeah, it was changing in magnitude and there was some speculation that it was about to go supernova. Um, mm -hmm. And if it went supernova, you know, it, it would expel a, a lot of its matter and become a very bright object. And, and, you know, it's quite close. So, it would be it would be a spectacular thing for astronomers all over to observe. So mm -hmm. uh, many astronomers were looking at it every night, hoping that it would you know explode or go supernova while they were looking at it. Uh, but then it turned out that it 
wasn't really the the changes in magna, uh, magnitude were not due to anything happening on the star itself, but it was just a, a dust cloud that was yeah. kind of passing by, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you're if you're looking at uh, the constellation Orion, um, you're you're going to notice the belt is in the middle and Betelgeuse is uh, to us it's the top left star in in the constellation it, it's going to be a brightish orange star um, and that's actually going to be orion's right shoulder he's looking back at you from space um, so it's his right shoulder but it's it's to our left or on the uh on the northern uh eastern side of the constellation and kind of just uh, dropping back to to the belt for a second um and we'll start to do a bit of a of a telescope and binocular tour um the belt itself uh, is part of an open cluster. Uh, most people, or a lot of people anyway, and when you're first getting into astronomy, uh, it's something uh, you might not realize. But uh, that grouping uh, around the belt, I think just two of the stars maybe in the belt, maybe not, not all three stars, and not all the stars that you're going to see in that area are part of this cluster. Um, but um, what you can actually see as part of the cluster is this sort of uh, S uh, snaking through um, the two stars on our right or on the uh, western side uh, of the belt. And they're really nice, uh, a nice binocular feature to see. Do you ever look at those? Yeah, yeah. Um, one of my favorite views is through my um, Teleview Genesis SDF. It gives about a five degree field of view with the uh, 31 millimeter Nagler. And uh, taking in all of the belt through that view is just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if we look at the belt and we look at the, uh, at the left or easternmost star, that is Zeta Orionis. And that is one of the most famous stars uh, because it has some nebulae around it. Um, so just to the east, sort of just outside of, of sort of that Orion figure, sort of almost hanging right onto Zeta is uh, an NGC uh, nebula called NGC 2024. Now you go from the, the belt, which is probably among the, one of the easiest open clusters to see uh, in the nighttime sky through your binoculars to NGC 2024, which is a challenging nebula to see in binoculars, but from a dark site, um, it is actually reasonably uh, easy to see in a, in a pair of like seven by 50 or seven by 40, uh, 40 millimeter to 50 millimeter binoculars. Um, have you ever seen it in binoculars before? I don't think so. No, no. I, you know, it's, it's strange, uh, but I don't think like I, I rarely have used binoculars on anything in Orion, which seems silly because in the winter time, you know, mm -hmm. binoculars are usually used a little bit more around here just because of how cold it is. You, you, yeah. know, you don't often set up a telescope. Yeah. I'll often just drive, uh, 20 minutes, I'll just drive 20 minutes out into the fields, get it with my binoculars. I'll do 20 minutes and then drive home. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, it's funny. I often don't even count those as observing sessions. I'm just like looking to get out, looking to do something else. And, uh, just, uh, just looking to, uh, to make some use of some, some clear skies when we have it. Um, now going below that is one of the most challenging objects, uh, that most people ever, ever glimpse. Um, you know, now people that are chasing a lot of challenges, uh, will go after some stuff that, that is truly difficult. Um, but the elusive horsehead nebula, 
is also right here just below Zeta Orionis, uh, and that's uh, Barnard or B33, uh, the 33 entry in, in Barnard's catalog of dark nebula. And I think it's kind of unfortunate because I think it's it's perhaps the most famous dark nebula, uh, but it's it's among the most difficult to see. Have you ever seen uh, the Horsehead Nebula, Shane? No, I haven't. Not through a telescope, uh, just in pictures, obviously. Um, it's definitely on my list. Uh, just part of the issue is, is, um, getting to a dark site in the wintertime. I, yeah. I just, I struggle with that. It's so much easier to set up in the backyard, uh, largely because if I get cold, I can just go, you know, indoors and warm up very quickly. Um, going to a dark site in the wintertime around here is just such a like next level commitment that, uh, I, I just don't do it that often, but, um, you know, I, I want to, um, have you, I think you've seen it before. Yeah, I've seen it a few times. Um, so the first time I saw it was, I mean, it was brutally cold. Like I think, um, well, like in Nova Scotia, getting into the minus, uh, teens, minus 20, maybe is, is about as cold as, as, uh, as it does get there. Um, and I went out with my, uh, observing partner at the time, Graham, uh, who unfortunately, uh, even, even though he's, he's, he was a bit younger than me, he's, he's passed away, unfortunately. Um, and we did see it, we could, we borrowed an H beta. So this is like a nebula filter because it just allows through a certain wavelengths of light that the horse head, uh, or the nebula around the horse head emits. And, uh, and we set up a scope. I can't remember what we used, might've used his eight inch. And we went up to this place. It's called the Liscom Game Reserve, which nobody has ever heard of. Nobody, nobody except for this small segment of people um, in our area ever even know about or go to. And it's, it's one of the most beautiful places um, that you could ever imagine. But there's, there's just nobody there. And there's nobody for like 100 miles. Um, so it's, it's really quite a dark place. Um, not advisable to go driving around there at night, especially in the winter, because there's a lot of moose and black bears. Um, and who knows, who knows what else? There's a lot of, uh, we don't have wolves, but we have a wolf, uh, coyote hybrid anyway. And, uh, we did see it and I've seen it on, on subsequent, uh, nights. I've even seen it through my five inch. Um, but you need a really good night and it, it takes a lot of, uh, futzing around to, to actually see it. Um, but Shane, I think you've got, you know, and, and that really is hard. I just wanted to sort of put that in there because when I'm thinking of Orion, I'm thinking of that, but I think, uh, you've got, uh, a quadruple star system of some sort for us to hop to next. Yeah. So just underneath the Zeta Orionis is Sigma Orionis. Um, and I mentioned this observation actually in our previous podcast that we just recorded, um, but it's a, it's a quintuple. So, you know, it's a multiple star system. Um, there's four, well, there's five stars in this system, um, that are all, um, interacting upon each other, uh, with gravity. Um, however, only four of those stars are visible with amateur telescopes, uh, visually. Um, and it's often, uh, referred to as one of the prettiest multiple star systems, uh, in the sky. Uh, the magnitude varies from 3.79 to 8.43. And I think the closest separation is about 30 arc seconds. Um, so it's a, it's a really neat system to observe. Um, and uh, uh, kind of another interesting side note is uh, uh, that Zeta Orionis is also a double star, 
Although I think its separation is pretty close, if I remember correctly, it's a, it's a challenge. But, um, you know, if you're in that region of the sky, uh, you know, check out Sigma Orionis. It's beautiful. Um, and, you know, what's really neat about Orion is it is just packed full of stuff to look at. You know, mm-hmm. like you just pan around slowly, uh, especially around the belt. Um, it is just packed full of double stars and dark nebula and cluster. Like it's just, uh, it's beautiful, beautiful part of the sky. Yeah. Well, uh, sort of moving on uh, below the belt. Um, we have that sword region of Orion, of, of which M42, the Orion Nebula, is is among the more prominent uh, features. But, you know, if you look at the belt and then you drop your gaze down into that sword area, um, even with your unaided eye, you'll see kind of a fuzzy uh, vertical line uh, pointing back towards the, the belt. And sort of the, 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 the largest fuzz point in that line is, is sort of noting Orion. But the whole thing that you're seeing there is a combination, like Shane was saying, of nebulas and clusters and dark nebula and, and different things. Um, so we have uh, M42 as sort of like the primary. And, you know, of course, when I was first looking at it through my 10 by 50s, um, I'm really focused on the Orion nebula itself. But even with... Um, the smallest of binoculars, you can see a couple NGC open clusters. So you have NGC 1981 to the north and NGC 1980 to the south uh, or the bottom of, of M42. Um, and then I think there's actually about another half dozen or more NGC clusters and nebula mm-hmm. uh, right around uh, that area. There's also some Herbig Hero objects, um, which I've unsuccessfully tried to hunt down in the, in the area as well. So they're definitely, like you're saying, is uh, an awful lot. Uh, to take a look at. Yeah, yeah. I was looking at 1981 last night uh, with the Tasco TE. Um, it's a really nice open cluster. Again, yeah. like, and, and it just jumps out because, um, like, there's a lot of bright stars in that cluster. Um, mm-hmm. and like you said, you know, great in binoculars as well. Yeah, I've got a pretty good sketch of it through my 20 by 60s. If you go onto the RASC.ca site, it, it should be up there somewhere. Um, yeah, there's like a sketching form where people can just go on there and look at the sketching form. And I've got a number of sketches in there, but that, that one is up there for sure. Sort of moving on. Um, if we go back up to the head, sort of the top of Orion, there's uh, a grouping of, of three stars. Um, they form land Lambda Orionis. Um, so it's Misa, Phi one and Phi two. And so, that that grouping is is actually colander 69 there's a few faint stars around that as well not many um it's sort of a, a sparse open cluster that you can actually see with your unaided eye and it's been noted for a long time it's actually in al sufi's uh book of fixed stars uh from oh i'm gonna get this wrong but i think it's like 972 ad or or thereabouts anyway around, around the 970s 980s uh ad and uh of course that's before they, they even had uh, telescopes. Now, if you do happen to have that Horsehead Nebula H Bader filter, um, you can sweep around that area if you have a really wide field telescope. And the only telescope I've really seen this well in is, is my five inch Apochromat um, using a very low power and a wide field of view, almost four degrees. Uh, you can see a Sharpless uh, Nebula uh, called the Angelfish Nebula. But you said there's also a, uh, a, a double as part of Lambda Rhinus. Do you want to Tell us about that. Yeah, Lambda Orionis itself is a double star. Um, like you mentioned, it marks the head of Orion. 
Um, the two stars, so one is magnitude 3.39, uh, the other one is 5.45, so two fairly bright stars, uh, and the separation is four and a half arc minutes. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, that's uh, fairly resolvable. Um, uh, what was Saturn and Jupiter recently during the conjunction? Six arc minutes, I think? Something like that. Yeah, and, and six arc minutes is visibly, uh, like just visually, you can spot well, that. Sorry, I think they were 0.6 of a degree. Yeah, so. Yeah, okay. It's a little um, further. <laughs> right, right. Um, so this, um, you know, with, with a telescope, uh, you should be able to split this, um, this double star. Yeah, cool. So continuing up, we'll go up into, uh, Taurus now. So the uh, Taurus is known as the bull and it, although there's some, some debate on this, um, there seems to be some evidence at least, and it's on the IAU or the International Astronomic Union website, um, that perhaps Taurus the Bull uh, is a constellation, is representing some very early cave paintings from like maybe around twelve or 13,000 years ago or so. But the bull itself, it really just kind of looks like a wedge with the, um, uh, or like a triangle on its side with the bigger open area sort of facing towards the northeast um, and the pointing area facing towards the south, uh, south uh, west. Um, but the brightest star there that marks the eye of the bull is Aldebaran. And now you said that just east of Aldebaran, there's, there's a double star and maybe I'll let you go with that one. Yeah, sure. Um, just east of Aldebaran is a, uh, it's a really good binocular double star because the separation is quite large, uh, 347 arc minutes. Um, uh, the, and they're fairly bright. So the main star is 3.41 magnitude. The companion is 3.94. Um, but what makes this pair interesting is there's some color differences. Uh, one, one is yellow and one is white. Um, and if you're under, um, you know, good, good skies, you can separate this naked eye as well, or at least some observers have been able to split this one naked eye. Um, so that's another one to add to your list. And that's uh, Theta Tauri. Theta Tauri. Cool. Yeah. So, you know, one thing about these uh, bright stars like Aldebaran, and we talked about Betelgeuse and, and talked about Cirrus in, in the last podcast a little bit, is that sometimes people think that the winter sky is, uh, is much clearer, um, maybe because of the temperatures or whatever. And sometimes it certainly can be. Um, but uh, just like sort of like the average non-astronomer thinks that way because uh, we have more bright stars in the winter sky than we do at any other time of the year. Hmm. That explains it. Yeah, because a, uh, a lot of people ask me that, that are not astronomers ask me about how, you know, how much better the winter skies are. And, you know, my, my response usually is that they're actually not that good here. It's, it's either no. cloudy or, or, or too cold in the wintertime. Uh, very few nights do we really get good seeing. Yeah. Uh, at least here where we live. Um, now yeah. the rest of the year we, we do pretty well, but uh, yeah. not so much in the winter. Yeah. Um, but you know, that area around Aldebaran, and although sort of Strangely enough, Aldebaran isn't part of, of this open cluster, but there's also a, a large naked eye cluster called the Hyades. And most people will be, uh, be familiar with that, but it's, it's sort of uh, about the four degrees around the area just east of Aldebaran. Um, but it's a beautiful spot. If you point your really wide field binoculars at Aldebaran, if you have like a six or so degree field of view um, and you put uh, Aldebaran in sort of the lower 
or, or on the left side, you're going to get uh, the Hyades uh, open cluster in there. So uh, there are some other clusters uh, that are available. If you kind of kind of look four degrees um, east of Aldebaran instead of uh, four degrees west of Aldebaran, you'll find the open cluster uh, NGC 1647, and then another seven or eight degrees um, to the west of that, uh, you're gonna you're gonna land at NGC 1746. But I'm just I'm just thinking this out. So if you actually are looking at Aldebaran to the right is the Hyades, uh, and that's to the west. And then if you're looking at Aldebaran to the left is east, and that's where NGC 1647, and then further along 1746 resides. So if you kind of even just sort of scan in that area, and you have a, a pair of handheld binoculars, seven by 35 or larger, say, um, you're going to be able to uh, to find those. But Shane, you've got a, another uh, double here, a Struve yeah, double well, star? Struve, a Struve double. Um, oh, my notes disappeared. Just give me one moment here. It's in a it's in an inconspicuous area of Taurus. So finding this will actually be the greater challenge um, because there's not a lot of like super bright stars around it. Um, but uh, this one here is Struve uh, 430. Um, and it's a pair of orange stars, magnitude 677 and 9.56. So, you know, this is getting uh, to the point where you do need some optical aid, especially from uh, light polluted skies. Although they're not very tight, uh, 26.2 arc minutes. Um, so if you can get, get it in the field uh, with your binoculars or telescope, you'll, you'll be able to split these ones. Um, but it is, uh, like I say, a little ways off. So if you would start at, say, the Hyades or that general region, it's about 15 degrees uh, southwest of that. And it's in like the constellation of Taurus is kind of the head of the bowl and then like its front feet and hooves. Or, yeah, I guess they don't really have feet, do they? I'm not sure. But um, it's in that kind of front leg area of the constellation. Um, and 15 degrees is about a fist and a half uh, width, you know, held out at arm's length. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. So heading sort of further along, maybe a little bit to, uh, to the west of, uh, of going north, um, just before we get to uh, Perseus, we find uh, the Pleiades or M45. And I would say probably the Pleiades is uh, among the most famous uh, open clusters in the nighttime sky. And, and sometimes, especially people that are getting used to uh, using binoculars in the nighttime sky, I've had people kind of confuse it with a little dipper because the little mm. dipper can be a bit elusive. And then when you take your binoculars and point them uh, at the Pleiades, I, I've also heard some people refer to it as almost like a shopping cart. Maybe it was Stephen O'Meara okay. who referred to it as, as like a shopping cart. And uh, people will say, oh, it looks like a little, little dipper uh, or something uh, like that. But, you know, they say from, from a dark sky, you know, most people should be able to see about uh, five or six stars from a dark sky. How many, yep. how many stars have you ever picked up there, Naked Eye? Well, like red, like last night under not so good seeing conditions, I, I could easily pick up six uh, okay. in the city. Yeah, um, from a dark sky, um, you know that that certainly becomes easier to start pulling out some of the uh, other yeah. fainter stars of that uh, of that cluster. Yeah. So, and and I think there actually is a possible like seventeen stars that you should be able to get from a dark sky. I might have gotten close to that. I definitely on one night, I was able to get 13, I drew 13 stars. But what happens is you start to get uh, 
well, first of all, they're packed into a tight region of sky. So it can be difficult just to kind of pull them all apart from each other. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, of course, you know, it's almost like you get to the point where it's just like star upon star upon star. And it's just like a like a glowing, uh, a really bright uh, glowing mass. Um, and then the view of the nebula, um, there's this unassociated nebula. So uh, the Pleiades is an open star cluster that did form in a nebula a long time ago, I think around the time of the dinosaurs, uh, a couple million years ago. Um, but it moved long away. I don't know where that nebula is or if they even know which, which nebula, if that nebula even exists anymore. Um, but the cluster just sort of by happenstance is passing through uh, what would other, otherwise be like a dark nebula and it's, uh, and it's causing some reflection there. And so we have this, this bluish, almost purplish in the astrophotos uh, reflection nebula around the, uh, the Pleiades as well. Have you ever seen that reflection nebula there? I think the brightest part is around Merope. Yeah, I have in my 12 inch light bridge. And um, uh, I think that was when we were at the Dirt Hills site. Uh, okay. Quite a ways away from yeah. here. Um, but last night I was reading Phil Harrington's uh, book about uh, binocular observing and in particularly around Pleiades. Yep. And he mentioned that a lot of people report seeing nebulosity around multiple stars within the Pleiades. Yeah. And uh, he said, what that is, is um, you just have dirty optics. <laughs> um, yeah. So like if you're seeing a lot of nebulosity within multiple stars of that cluster, uh, it's probably time to, you know, blow some dust off of your eyepieces or, or you know, maybe it's time for, uh, you know, a more in-depth cleaning. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So uh, maybe we'll move along up. We'll keep going north and we'll get into uh, Perseus now. So uh, like I said, if, if you live at about 50 degrees north latitude, you go up between about nine and 10 uh, and you look straight up, you're going to see Perseus. If you actually live further south, um, I think you almost have to look past the overhead region because it's going to be really into, into the northern part of the sky. Of course, the, uh, the further south you go, um, the more the stars will sort of move, um, you know, at least uh, from your perspective, from from the southern sky uh, up into the northern sky eventually. And so because uh, Perseus is, is basically overhead for us at 50, uh, if you went down to like uh, southern Florida, uh, you're going to start, I think you're going to start to see it in, uh, in more like the, the northerly part of the sky. So um, let's see, Shane, uh, recently you spoke about Malat 20 which mm-hmm. is a large open cluster. Now the, the pattern of Perseus, it's, it's not really that easy to see. Um, I don't know, like what, what would you call the pattern of Perseus? Well, there, there seems to be like almost a, a vertical line of prominent stars yeah. with like a, a jut out, like Algo uh, juts out. It almost reminds me of like a mast with a sail, you know? Okay. Yeah. That's actually um, a pretty good way to view it. Yeah, but other than that, uh, that that like that's what I see at least from the city. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it it's a bright set of stars. It's kind of in the area that's that's more or less um, caught between Auriga, Andromeda, and Cassiopeia, um, and it it's one of those constellations you know uh, that people do eventually track down because of the uh, Perseus meteor shower, uh, which is in the uh, early August sky. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we've got, uh, there's a few objects up there, you know, that we'll talk about. Um, So there's the open cluster of M34, which is on the, on the Western side. It's actually not too far from, from Algol, which uh, 
which you mentioned, and it's one of the Messier open clusters. So do you have any, any happy memories of observing Messier 34 there? <laughs> no, no, not a lot. Um, you know, it's an interesting cluster, but there's a lot, in my opinion, there's a lot nicer clusters out there to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting is again, you know, uh, when we do these podcasts and people send us emails with their observations or whatever it might be, I'm, I find myself learning along the way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think it was, I think it was man meat, uh, was telling us about Herschel one, one, two, three, um, a double star within M34. Uh, That's right. And, yeah. That I'm going to try to uh, have a look at. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of going back, um, sort of down towards the Pleiades there. So there, there's a bit of a, almost like, well, it's like Perseus's leg, um, that kind of extends down towards, uh, the Pleiades there, but kind of in his, uh, in his like shin area, I guess, as, as I'm, as I'm looking at it, uh, and I'm not going to get too specific here because, um, if you're going to try to hunt down the California nebula, um, you're going to want to have, uh, some experience and, and to take a look at some, uh, good star charts and, and finer charts for it. Some people call it the Bigfoot Nebula or the California Nebula. Um, but it's, it's arguably among the larger and easier H-beta objects uh, to see. So if you have that H-beta filter and a really wide field little telescope, um, should be able to hunt that down in pretty much any, any small, really wide field telescope. Um, and once you've seen it, so it's, there's a bit of a trick here. So one of the funny things with astronomy is once you've seen something in one instrument, it becomes easier to see it in another instrument. So for example, the first time I saw the horse head, I was using an, uh, my friend's eight inch telescope. Uh, but then once, once I'd done that from, from the darkest sky we could get to, um, I was then able to, to pick it up in my, in my five inch from slightly uh, lesser skies. And the same thing with the California nebula. So I have, you know, tracked it down many times with my five inch in the H beta. And then uh, eventually I've, I've been able to pull it in with, uh, with seven by 50 binoculars from, from really, really good skies though. So, so yeah, if you, you've seen the California nebula, I think I've shown that to you a few times. Yeah. Yeah, I have. Um, I'd like to try it, uh, naked eye, you know, with just holding the filter over your eye just to see, uh, you know, if I could pull it out that way, but, uh, definitely through optics, I've seen it. Yeah, it's yeah, it's not too bad. It's it is uh, it is pretty bright. It's it's a pretty famous uh, nebula that that people like to to take photos of. Uh, one of the people in my class actually took a really good photo of it um, by staying up really late in the fall and sent that to me. So really exciting to see. Um, well, so we have the double cluster um, up there at the very top yeah. of. We talked about Malad Twenty before, which is which is the big open cluster around uh, Murfak, but so we're not going to talk about that at this time. Um, but the double clusters are at the top, and the double cluster um, are these two NGC clusters, things like eight six nine, and I forget what the other one is, uh, yeah. eight nine six or something like that, but. These are these two really tight open clusters and to the eye, they look fuzzy. Um, and then of course you put binoculars or a small telescope and they just sort of explode um, into these stars as many people have described like stars on black velvet because the, the area sky around them actually has some dark nebula, I think in, in behind them. So it really, really makes them uh, pop out. But typically the, uh, the double cluster is uh, among the first sort of non-messy objects uh, that people actually will, will go and hunt down just because it's, it's so prominent. 
Yeah, in fact, I think that was probably my first non-Messier object that I've observed. And uh, through through larger optics, like, um, you know, an 8-inch Newtonian or, or larger, uh, it really looks like uh, just two piles of diamonds. Like you mentioned, the sky is so black there, and then those mm-hmm. stars just are so bright. And you with, with a little bit of aperture, you can really pull out, oh, I, I, you know, I'd say hundreds of stars, probably, individual stars, if you were to really count them all. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just so many visible it's it's that's one of the most beautiful uh things to look at in the night sky in my opinion yeah yeah for sure for sure yeah and i'm just uh kind of looking at bears uh urinometry here i was trying to remember if the uh the double cluster i think is in there in bears urinometry i think it was uh cataloged uh, prior to the uh prior to the telescope being used but maybe it's on the cassiopeia uh, charts, but uh, anyway, I won't try to dive too deep into that while we're actually doing the podcast. Should have done that before, but you know, really, those those are kind of I think a, a good uh, set of objects. And so, uh, did you want to talk about Miram? Yeah. So, well, Miriam or Miram, um, it's the prominent southern star in Perseus. Wasn't um, that so uh, Robin Hood's girlfriend? <laughs> I don't, I'm not a Robin Hood person. I oh. have to ask Jessica. She loves that show. But <laughs> okay, there you go. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, Miriam or Miram is uh, one of the more beautiful double stars that you can look at. Um, now, I think a lot of people probably have observed or at least are familiar with Elberio in Cygnus. Um, Elberio is two fairly bright stars, one is gold and one is blue. Although Elberio really isn't a double star system because those two stars have no association. It's just an optical alignment from Earth. Um, but in Perseus, Miriam uh, is a true double that is very similar to Elberio. Uh, one star is kind of a golden color and then the other is blue. Um, th- uh, the magnitude of uh, the, the prominent star is uh, 3.75, which is quite bright. Um, and then the companion is eight and a half. Um, the separation is 30.4 arc seconds. And I have to correct myself. I think all of the double stars so far I've reported in arc minute separations. That's wrong. Uh, substitute out arc minute for arc second in all of the uh, reports that I gave in this episode. And this, again, a, a note, we do not edit this show. No, no. <laughs> you get it in all of its glory. Get it in all of its <laughs> exactly, exactly. Keep going. Uh, well, that's that's about it. Have you ever looked that's, at this one, Chris? I I haven't. Um, I'm going to make it my New Year's resolution to look wow. at more double stars. Wow, <laughs> that's a bit of a joke. Um, because of course you have to resolve them. Just like a resolution. Oh, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, but sort of, sort of, as part and parcel to that, um, might might try as we were talking about earlier to try to do some uh, sort of more specific uh, binocular type tours uh, as I kick up my my astronomy class. Might uh, might put those out as some uh, supplemental uh, material, not full full episodes, but just uh, sort of. Uh, you know, maybe like 15 minutes sky tours as we kind of, as we kind of play with this format. I mean, you know, it's, it's fun to kind of do this. Um, you know, the, the one thing that I never realized for a long time is how much uh, double star observing you do. Um, and I've been really impressed, you know, I've been really impressed by that Shane, And uh, I think it's pretty cool. 
And we definitely, we've had some sessions doing it, but I kind of look forward to, uh, to the end of the COVID experience and, uh, and maybe doing some, some more double, double star uh, observing. So uh, yeah, definitely, definitely looking forward to that. And then as, uh, as I do get in to teach my classes though, I kind of want to do some more sort of basic uh, observing uh, sessions and maybe, maybe some brief, uh, podcasts that, uh, that I can kind of put out to, to the students, but then as well, maybe we'll just include them in the podcast, um, simply because it's, it's just extra material at that point anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds awesome. All right. Cool. So anything else to add for this podcast? That is all that I have. All right. Well, thanks so much, Shane. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Have yourself a lovely day. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you would like to ask us questions or leave feedback, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Actual Astronomy, or you can email us. We are actualastronomy at gmail.com. And if you would like to support the podcast with a donation, uh, we are selling merchandise at teespring.com slash stores slash actual astronomy. We wish you all clear and dark skies.